Section forty five of the Life of Samuel Johnson, volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Next day I dined with Johnson at Mr. Thrale's. He attacked Gray, calling him a dull fellow. Boswell. I understand he was reserved and might appear dull in company, but surely he was not dull in poetry. Johnson. Sir, he was dull in company, dull in his closet, dull everywhere. Footnote. Johnson in his Life of Grey, Works, Volume 8, page 481, spoke better of him. What has occurred to me from the slight inspection of his letters, in which my understanding has engaged me, is that his mind had a large gap, that his curiosity was unlimited, and his judgment cultivated. Horace Walpole letters allowed that he was bad company. September the 3rd, 1748. I agree with you most absolutely in your opinion about Gray. He is the worst company in the world. From a melancholy turn, from living reclusely, and from a little too much dignity, he never converses easily. All his words are measured and chosen. His writings are admirable. He himself is not agreeable. End footnote. Sir, he was dull in company, dull in his closet, dull everywhere. He was dull in a new way, and that made many people think him great. He was a mechanical poet. He then repeated some ludicrous lines which have escaped my memory, and said, Is not that great? Like his odes. Mrs. Thrale maintained that his odes were melodious upon which he exclaimed, Weave the warp and weave the woof. I added in a solemn tone, The winding sheet of Edward's race. There is a good line. I said he, and the next line is a good one, pronouncing it contemptuously. Give ample verge and room enough. Footnote in the original, Give ample room and verge enough. In the Life of Grey, Works, Volume 7, page 486, Johnson says that the slaughtered bards are called upon to weave the warp and weave the woof, perhaps with no great propriety, for it is by crossing the woof with the warp that men weave the web or piece. And the first line was dearly bought by the admission of its wretched correspondent give ample room and verge enough. He has, however, no other line as bad. End of footnote. No, sir, there are but two good footnote. This word, good, which is in the first edition, is not in the second or third. End of footnote. But two good stanzas in Gray's poetry, which are in his Elegy in a Country Churchyard. He then repeated the stanza, for who to dumb forgetfulness a prey, etc., mistaking one word, for instead of precincts he said confines, he added, no, the other stanza I forget. 
Footnote. The churchyard abounds with images which find a mirror in every mind, and with sentiments to which every bosom returns an echo. The four stanzas beginning, Yet even these bones are to me original. I have never seen the notions in any other place, yet he that reads them here persuades himself that he has always felt them. Had Gray written often thus, it had been vain to blame, and useless to praise him. Works, volume 8, page 487. Goldsmith, in his life of Parnell, thus seems to sneer at the elegy. The night piece on death deserves every praise, and I should suppose with very little amendment might be made to surpass all those night pieces and churchyard scenes that have since appeared. End footnote. A young lady who had married a man much her inferior in rank being mentioned, footnote, Mr. Croker says, no doubt Lady Susan Fox, who in 1773 married Mr. William O'Brien, an actor. It was in 1764 that she was married, so that it is not likely that she was the subject of this talk. End of footnote. A question arose how a woman's relation should behave to her in such a situation. And while I recapitulate the debate and recollect what has since happened, footnote Mrs. Thrale's marriage with Mr. Piozzi, end of footnote, I cannot but be struck in a manner that delicacy forbids me to express. While I contended that she ought to be treated with an inflexible steadiness of displeasure, Mrs. Thrale was all for mildness and forgiveness, and, according to the vulgar phrase, making the best of a bad bargain. Johnson. Madam, we must distinguish. Were I a man of rank, I would not let a daughter starve who had made a mean marriage, but, having voluntarily degraded herself from the station which she was originally entitled to hold, I would support her only in that which she herself had chosen and would not put her on a level with my other daughters. You are to consider, madam, that it is our duty to maintain the subordination of civilised society, and when there is a gross and shameful deviation from rank, it shall be punished so as to deter others from the same perversion. After frequently considering this subject, I am more and more confirmed in what I then meant to express, and which was sanctioned by the authority and illustrated by the wisdom of Johnson. And I think it of the utmost consequence to the happiness of society, to which subordination is absolutely necessary. It is weak and contemptible and unworthy in a parent to relax in such a case, it is sacrificing general advantage to private feelings. And let it be considered that the claim of a daughter who has acted thus to be restored to her former situation is either fantastical or unjust. If there be no value in distinction of rank, what does she suffer by being kept in the situation to which she has descended? 
there be a value in that distinction, it ought to be steadily maintained. If indulgence be shown to such conduct, and the offenders know that in a longer or shorter time they shall be received as well as if they had not contaminated their blood by a base alliance, the great check upon that inordinate caprice which generally occasions low marriages will be removed, and the fair and comfortable order of improved life will be miserably disturbed. Footnote. Boswell was of the same way of thinking as Squire Weston, who did indeed consider a parity of fortune and circumstances to be physically as necessary an ingredient in marriage as difference of sexes or any other essential, and had no more apprehension of his daughter falling in love with a poor man than with any animal of a different species. Tom Jones, end of footnote. Lord Chesterfield's letters being mentioned, Johnson said, It was not to be wondered at that they had so great a sale, considering that they were the letters of a statesman, a wit, one who had been so much in the mouths of mankind, one long accustomed virum volatare per ora. Footnote. Temptande via est quame quoque possim tolere humo victoque virum monetare per ora. New ways I must attempt my grovelling fame to raise aloft and wing my flight to fame. Dryden, Virgil, Georgics, Book 3, Line 9. Chesterfield was at once the most distinguished orator in the upper house and the undisputed sovereign of wit and fashion. He held this eminence for about forty years. At last it became the regular custom of the higher circles to laugh whenever he opened his mouth, without waiting for his bon mot. He used to sit at White's, with a circle of young men of rank around him, applauding every syllable that he uttered. Macaulay's life, end of footnote. On Friday, March the 31st, I supped with him and some friends at a tavern, footnote, with the literary club, as is shown by Boswell's letter of April the 4th, 1775, in which he says, I dine on Friday at the Turk's Head, Gerard Street, with our club, who now dine once a month and sup every Friday. Letters of Boswell, end of footnote. One of the company footnote, very likely Boswell, end of footnote, attempted, with too much forwardness, to rally him on his late appearance at the theatre, but had reason to repent of his temerity. Why, sir, did you go to Mrs. Abington's benefit? Did you see? Johnson, no, sir. Did you hear? Johnson, no, sir. Why, then, sir, did you go? Johnson. Because, sir, she is a favourite of the public. And when the public cares the thousandth part for you than it does for her, I will go to your benefit, too. Footnote. In the Garrick correspondence is a letter dated March the 4th, 1776, from, to use Garrick's own words, and that worst of bad women, Mrs. Abington, to ask my playing for her benefit. 
it is endorsed by Garrick, a copy of Mother Abington's letter about leaving the stage. End footnote. Next morning I won a small bet from Lady Diana Beauclerc by asking him as to one of his particularities, which her ladyship laid I durst not do. It seems he had been frequently observed at the club to put into his pocket the Seville oranges after he had squeezed the juice of them into the drink which he made for himself. Beauclerc and Garrick talked of it to me and seemed to think that he had a strange unwillingness to be discovered. We could not divine what he did with them, and this was the bold question to be put. I saw on his table the spoils of the preceding night, some fresh peels, nicely scraped and cut into pieces. Oh, sir, said I, I now partly see what you do with the squeezed oranges which you put into your pocket at the club. Johnson, I have a great love for them. Boswell, and pray, sir, what do you do with them? You scrape them, it seems, very neatly, and what next? Johnson, let them dry, sir. Boswell, and what next? Johnson, nay, sir, shall know their fate no further. Boswell, then the world must be left in the dark. It must be said, assuming a mock solemnity, he scraped them and let them dry, but what he did with them next? He never could be prevailed upon to tell. Johnson. Nay, no, sir, you should say it more emphatically. He could not be prevailed upon even by his dearest friends to tell. End footnote. Twenty years earlier he had recommended to Miss Boothby, as a remedy for indigestion, dried orange peel finely powdered, taken in a glass of hot red port. I would not, he adds, have you offer it to the doctor as my medicine. Physicians do not love intruders. Piozzi letters. End of footnote. He had this morning received his diploma as doctor of laws from the University of Oxford. He did not vaunt of his new dignity, but I understood he was highly pleased with it. I shall here insert the progress and completion of that high academical honour in the same manner as I have traced his obtaining that of Master of Arts. To the Reverend Dr. Fothergill, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford, to be communicated to the heads of houses and proposed in convocation, Mr. Vice-Chancellor and Gentleman, footnote, the misprint of Chancellor for Gentleman is found in both the second and third editions, it is not in the first, end of footnote. The honour of the degree of M.A. by diploma formally conferred upon Mr. Samuel Johnson, in consequence of his having eminently distinguished himself by the publication of a series of essays, excellently calculated to form the manners of the people, and in which the cause of religion and morality has been maintained and recommended by the strongest powers of argument and elegance of language, reflected an equal degree of lustre upon the university itself. 
the many learned labours which have since that time employed the attention and displayed the abilities of that great man so much to the advancement of literature and the benefit of the community render him worthy of more distinguished honours in the republic of letters and i persuade myself that i shall act agreeably to the sentiments of the whole university in desiring that it may be proposed in convocation to confer on him the degree of doctor in civil law by diploma to which i readily give my consent and am mr vice-chancellor and gentlemen your affectionate friend and servant north downing street march twenty third seventeen seventy five footnote extracted from the convocation register oxford Boswell, end of footnote diploma cancellarius magistri et scolares universitatis saxoniensis omnibus et quos presentes literae pervenerint salutem in domino sempiternam sciatis virum illustrem samuelum johnson in omni humaniorum literarum generi eruditum omnium que scientiarum comprehensione felicissimum scriptis suis ad popularium mores formandos summa verborum elegantia accententiarum gravitate compositis ita olum incaruisse ordinus videreto cui ab academia sua eximia quaedam laudus primia deferento quiqui invenerabilem magistrorum ordinem summa cum dignitate coptareto cum vero eundum clarissimum virum tot posteat antique labores in patria praesertim lingua onanda et stabilienda felicite impensi ita insiniverint ut in literarum republica princepsiam et primarius jure habiato nos cancellarius magistri et scolares universitatis oxoniensis quotales viri merita pari honores remuneratione exaequento et perpetuum suae simulaudis nostraeque erga literas propensissima voluntatis extet monumentum in solenni convocatione doctorum et magistrorum regentium et non regentium praedictum samuelum johnson doctorum in jure civili renuncia vimus et constituimus eumque vetute praesentis diplomatis singulus juribus privilegiis et honoribus ad istum gradum quaqua pertinentibus frui et gaudere iusimus in cuius rei testimonium communi universitatis oxonientis sigulum praesentibus aponi fecimus datum in domo nostrae convocationis die tricesimum ensismati anno domini millesimo septicentesimo septuagesimo quinto footnote the original is in my possession he showed me the diploma and allowed me to read it but would not consent to my taking a copy of it, fearing perhaps that I should blaze it abroad in his lifetime. His objection to this appears from his ninety-ninth letter to Mrs. Thrale, 
whom in that letter he thus scolds for the grossness of her flattery of him the other oxford news is that they have sent me a degree of doctor of laws with such praises in the diploma as perhaps ought to make me ashamed they are very like your praises i wonder whether i shall ever show it in square brackets them in the original to you it is remarkable that he never so far as i know assumed his title of doctor but called himself mr johnson as appears from many of his cards or notes to myself and i have seen many from him to other persons in which he uniformly takes that designation i once observed on his table a letter directed to him with the addition of esquire and objected to it as being a designation inferior to that of doctor but he checked me and seemed pleased with it because as i conjectured he liked to be sometimes taken out of the class of literary men and to be merely genteel un gentilhomme comme un autre boswell see post march the thirtieth seventeen eighty one where johnson applies the title to himself in speaking and April thirteenth, seventeen eighty four, where he does it in writing, and Boswell's Hebrides, August the fifteenth, seventeen seventy three. Note end of footnote. Viro reverendo Tommai Fothergill Sacrae Theologiae Professori Universitatis Oxoniensis Vice Cancellario. Saludem plurimam dicit Samuel Johnson. Multis non est opus ut testimonium quo te praeside oxoniensis nomen meum posteris commendarunt, quali animo acceperim compertum faciam, nemo sibi placens non laetato. Footnote. To make a man pleased with himself, let me tell you, is doing a very great thing. Post April the twenty eighth, seventeen seventy eight, end of footnote. Nemo sibi non placet vobis literarum arbitris placeri potuit hoc tamen habet incommodi tantum beneficium quobihinumquam post hac sinevestre fame detrementova labiliceat vel cesare semperque sit timendum nequobihitam eximiae lari est vobis aliquando fiat approbio vale Septimides aprilis anno domini millesimo septigentesimo septuagesimo quinto. The original is in the hands of Dr. Fothergill, then Vice-Chancellor, who made this transcript. T. Wharton, Boswell. End of section 45.